Well, good morning, everyone. I know what some of you are thinking. You're wondering if everything's okay. You're wondering if I'm okay. I'm up here on the platform, and I'm not wearing an orange shirt. I just want to show you all I'm a multi-dimensional kind of guy. You know, after the long slideshow that Carl presented on my orange shirt, you would think this would be my moment of getting even with him. But he's not here, so I can't do that. In fact, uh, Carl just finished running the Berlin Marathon about three hours ago. So, I mean, that's very cool. We are uh, in the middle of a series that we've entitled Extraordinary. Why extraordinary? Because we're looking at what it would look like to live a life of love like Jesus. It would be anything but ordinary. It would be extraordinary. The first two weeks, Kevin went through and, and talked about how Jesus loved his Father. He talked about last week how he was always aware of his Father's presence in everything he did. He was in communion constantly with his Father. We're switching gears now. We're looking at Jesus' second commandment to us to love others as ourselves. And this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus led with grace. What would our lives look like if we led with grace the way Jesus did? We're going to look at a very familiar passage in uh, John chapter 8, and in a moment, we'll turn there. But first, a few preliminaries. First of all, the word grace. It's a word we use often. We use it in, very, uh, in multiple contexts. We use the word graceful in many ways, something that's graceful, something that's elegant and soft and gentle, it's graceful. The Bible has a very specific definition, if you will, about grace. And in simple terms, grace is to receive something of which you have no merit whatsoever to receive. You didn't do anything for it, but yet it was given to you. That's grace. Sometimes we talk about grace and mercy. We use them in the same sentence. What's the, dif what's the difference? In my simple terms, grace is receiving something you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving something you deserve. Today we're looking at grace. And we're going to do so in John chapter 8. But before we get into this very familiar passage, I want to give you a little bit of background because it's important to understand how we get to John chapter 8 verse 1. You see, in John chapter 6 and 7, we read how Jesus it was approaching the festival of tabernacles. And we can't get into the detail today. We don't have the time. But there's this whole discussion with his brothers to say, Jesus, come to Judea. This is your time. You're performing miracles. The world needs to know who you are. And Jesus says, it's not my time. And Jesus chooses to remain in Galilee. And he goes to the festival of temples, sorry, of tabernacles. And there, he goes to the temple courts to teach. I love how we read how Jesus is always sitting. It's always sort of this quiet, demure, yet incredibly present vision that we have. That Jesus sits, and he begins to teach, and he begins to talk, and people are sitting around him. Imagine the rapt attention of sitting at Jesus' feet. And there's a real buzz in the air. Who is this guy? He's not educated. He's not one of the teachers of the laws that's been introduced to us. 
Yet his wisdom, his understanding of Scripture is so powerful. And words are getting out. Could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah? Could he be the Christ? Words get out to the Pharisees. Of course, this is not good news to the Pharisees. Why? Because this heretic was going to upset everything they had set up. They had their laws, they had their ways, they had their traditions, they had their customs. But most importantly, they were on top of it all. They had their fiefdoms. They were viewed as the righteous of the righteous. They did not want this pretend Messiah to come and take this away. And so they send the temple guards to arrest Jesus. We don't entirely know where the temple guards were, but one passage I want to read to you in John 7 before we get to our verses this morning is that we read that on the last and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stands up and says in a loud voice. Interesting that the verses, the words say that he stood up in a loud voice, contrary to his usual quiet, beautiful, profound self. And he says in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive when Jesus is glorified and the Holy Spirit descends. We don't know where the guards were. Perhaps they were just in the midst of all the buzz and the teaching, or perhaps they were there listening to this. They returned back to the Pharisees empty-handed. Pharisees say, huh? What's the deal? You went to arrest him, you come back empty-handed. Did he as well deceive you? And they say, we have never heard a man speak like this before. That leads us to John chapter 8. And as we look this morning at how Jesus led with grace throughout his life, and in particular in this passage. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 8, chapter 1, but I've got all the verses behind me, and so you'll be able to read along, and I will share with you as we go. So we begin by reading, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So again, we read the same story. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Oh, they thought they had a clever trap now. They thought they had this perfect juxtaposition. They had Jesus. They knew their law. Sure enough, Deuteronomy 22.22 says that any man or woman, any man or woman, but somehow only women got stoned in this story, who are caught in adultery are to be stoned. And so they wanted to catch him. Either he would defile the law, he would say the law doesn't exist, and then they could denounce him for that. Or if he said the law existed, it would go contrary to this message that Jesus was bringing, saying that the living water will flow from you. Salvation is here. The Messiah is here. 
So they thought, yeah, we got him either way. By the way, you think it's a trap? The woman was caught in adultery. Think about those words. It's not like she was caught shoplifting at the mall. They obviously had it set up somehow, perhaps with a man, or they knew what was going on. You might imagine how they burst in to catch her in adultery, threw a shawl over her, her full shame, and they brought her. Not to the authorities, if they were so high and mighty on the law, they would have gone to the authorities. They bring her to the temple courts in front of everybody, and they have her stand. Just to add a little bit more to her shame. They thought they had her. They thought they had Jesus. But Jesus, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. <laughs> I'm the curiosity that killed the cat kind of person. We do not know what Jesus wrote. It is nowhere in scripture. There are texts, there are books written on what it was. He was writing out the list of the mistresses of all the Pharisees. He was just listing out all their sins. Maybe he was going on, remember he used to count to five, you know? Just on all of their sinfulness. When they kept on questioning him, <laughs> so, Jesus, what is it? A or B, A or B, A or B, what is it, what is it, what is it? And they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. We know this passage. If anyone is without blame, he can cast the first stone. Jesus again teaching as he had before that we are not to judge. Humans are not to judge other humans. Only the mighty and righteous God can judge. There is no allowance for anything else in spite of what the Pharisees thought. When you think about it, you look at Scripture in Matthew chapter 7. Just before, it just sort of through the Beatitudes, when Jesus is going through that, Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged. You will be judged with the same measure that you use on other people. Paul in Romans 12.1 says, You have no excuse, you who pass judgment. If you judge, you condemn yourself. And then James wraps it up beautifully in, in uh, James 4, verse 12. He says, There is one lawgiver and one judge, the one who saves and the one who destroys. But you, who are you to judge? No one. Then we go on with the story. Sometimes when we read these verses, we're sort of, we stop there. We get that message. But it's very important, the following verses, to look in detail as to what we learn in these words. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left. Why the older ones first? Perhaps their, con perhaps their conscience was heavier than anybody else, just thinking back on their lives and their lives of sinfulness. Until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
No one, sir, she said. Can you imagine? This poor woman, she's still standing. It's not like everybody else left. The Pharisees left. She's still standing in the temple courts, ashamed, shawl over her shoulders. She knew what the law said. She knew she was headed towards a death of stoning. Terrible, terrible situation. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He is the one judge, the one ruler. But Jesus chooses not to condemn. He chooses to save with his grace. Go now and leave your life of sin. Two other important parts that we need to talk about here. The first is that Jesus doesn't condone her sin. Sometimes we get into this awkward position where we think, well, if we lead a life of grace, are we being soft on sin? Doesn't God tell us that iron sharpens iron? Jesus isn't being soft on sin. He's not condoning it. But through grace, he's saving her life. He's saving our lives figuratively for eternity for this woman on earth as well as eternity. But almost as if it's a double scoop of grace, an extra helping of grace. He frees her from her life of sin. When we talk about the kingdom of God being here on earth today, through the Holy Spirit indwelling in you and I, that there is a new beginning, it is that we've been freed from sin. Galatians 5 says it beautifully. It is, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Imagine that it's by, don't be burdened, don't be a slave to sin anymore. You are freed. This woman probably had a pretty checkered past, but yet in her lifetime, She's also freed from those shackles, as we are. I love the story of the woman sitting with her pastor just before being baptized. And he says, well, tell me a bit about your story. She says, well, I was a terrible sinner. But through the grace of God, I understood that Jesus came for me, died on the cross, and I have salvation through Jesus Christ. And the pastor says, so what about now? Are you still a sinner? She says, yes, I am. She says, well, what's the difference? She says, well, before, I was a sinner running towards sin, habitually running towards sin. I'm a sinner now, but through the help of the Holy Spirit, through the grace of God, I'm running away from sin. It's our story. The master class started two weeks ago. I know many people are involved. Tuesday nights with Brian Carney and Kevin, Thursday mornings with Kevin and Wayne. The very first Tuesday, Kevin had us do this little exercise, table exercise that we're going to take up with everyone. It's like, pick the one or two verses in the Bible that describe the gospel to you. 
So we all had a moment to reflect, and we started sharing, and I thought, oh, is this a test? <laughs> I got, I was like, I don't know if I got it right. Like, I, you know, and I, I'll never be able to stand on the platform again. I can't even describe the gospel. I thought, well, John 3.16, for sure. I mean, that's technically correct, right? And I thought of Ephesians 2.8, my favorites, through grace that you've been saved, not by works, so no man can boast. I thought, those two cover it. But is that really the whole gospel? Sure enough, as we took up the discussion at the table and we started talking as a group, everybody had two or three key verses that could describe the gospel, technically, if you will. Paul and Lynn Lewis even had a camp song, Romans or something, that went through the whole list, I think, which they shared with the table and the group. It was very nice. But as we started talking, and as, as people through the group started talking, we started understanding just the, the depth of the gospel and the breadth of it and how we describe and how we talk about the gospel. Everybody know what an elevator pitch is? I, I know it's a bit of a salesy term. We usually would tell salespeople, you need your elevator pitch ready. How do you describe what you want to talk about in a succinct and clear way? So from the time you got on the elevator to you get off the elevator, whoever you were talking to understood and hopefully were willing to buy an elevator pitch. I started thinking about this Sunday, and I started thinking about this woman, the adulterous woman, how she was condemned to death. The whole world thought she was no good. She was condemned to be stoned. And Jesus said, no one condemns you, and I do not. Go live a life free of sin. I thought, that's my elevator pitch. And many of you have different ones, but that sure works for me. You know, it'd be one thing if that was the only story that we had in Scripture of how Jesus led with grace. But start thinking about all his encounters. Encounter the woman at the well. Very similar story. You remember her? She came, she met Jesus happenstance at the well. At least she thought it was happenstance. She was alone. Why was she alone? Because all the other women would come early in the morning. Not high noon, it was 125 degrees out. They all gathered together so they could just share the news and figure out what's going on in the families and so on and who's expecting another child. She was ostracized from everyone. But Jesus met her there. And he talked about the living water. And, there, and then Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. She says, you must be a prophet. I don't have a husband. She, he says, I know. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. She says, you must be a prophet. And they get into this whole discussion. And Jesus says, soon, it won't matter whether you're worshiping on one mountain or another, whether you're a Jew, a Samaritan, or whoever. And she says, I know someday the Messiah will come and will clear all this up for us. And he says, I am the Messiah. We don't really know what happens to her. The apostles come back from their grocery shopping trip and she sort of disappears. The next thing you know, she's in the village witnessing that she's met the Messiah. And we read that many, many believed that day. Jesus leading with grace. My favorite story is Zacchaeus, little tax collector. We kind of think he's cute. You know, he's supposed to be little. He's up in a tree. He wants to see what's going on. The fact is, as tax collectors, we're just 
terrible. It wasn't like they were part of the Canada Revenue Agency and there were specific guidelines. Tax collecting meant you collected as much as you could from people. And if you were high up, you'd get to collect from all the other taxpayers. And that was Zacchaeus. You, know, you would think Jesus might come along and see him and kind of do a proverbial, like, you know, shoot him out of the tree for all of what he'd done to his people. But Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, you got to come down out of that tree because I'm going to your house right now. Jesus led with grace every time. What do we take away from this? What do we take away from this and other passages of Scripture where we see God's abundant grace, obviously through the death of his son for you and I, but how Jesus as well was gentle and graceful with people. I want to go through maybe three different areas. The first is something I would call practical grace. You see, we are, you and I, his children. We are the children of God here. We are witnesses to testify to his grace. How do we behave in that way? Rachel Evans, who's a blogger that I know uh, many women here follow, and perhaps some men as well, has this great way of describing how grace is sort of like this doctrine that's in our heads. It's a theology, and oh, we will defend it vigorously if anybody should take it on. Oh, we got it. But somehow, grace is stuck up here, and it doesn't always flow to our hearts and our hands and our feet. And so here's some practical ways. I know if I took up a survey, we would have as many practical ways of how we can display grace to this community. Elizabeth was just talking about our fall fair, we're talking about the food cupboard and so on. But here are some to consider. First, our words. I always say words are important. I love Proverbs 15 that says that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh run brings anger. Have you ever experienced that? But do you bring a gentle answer as often as you can and show grace. Give something to someone that they probably didn't deserve in that conversation. Look for needs and opportunities. And we read about this in Romans 12, to be devoted to one another. I love our church. I love this church. There are so many amazing things about it. There are so many saints in this church who look after the opportunities and needs of others. It's one of my favorite things, to look after those in need. Elizabeth Gilbert, who is a popular author that I think many of you would recognize, tells this wonderful story about talking to her sister one day. And her sister recounts the story of this family in her community, whether it be her neighborhood or we, we, I don't entirely know what the community is. This woman in her community that she and her toddler are stricken by cancers. And hearing the news, Elizabeth Gilbert blurts out, oh my goodness, that family needs God's grace. And her sister replies, they don't need God's grace, they need casseroles. <laughs> and she begins to organize her neighborhood and they bring meals, every meal for every day for over a year to that family. 
And Elizabeth concludes her little story by saying, I wonder if my sister realized they got God's grace. Amazing story. Letting it go. Forgive as God forgave us. Well, that's hard. That's hard to let it go. Sometimes the grievances are great. I know it's not simple. But we could start by some simple practices, couldn't we? Any of you, when driving in rush hour, encounter situations where it's going from two lanes to one lane? They call it a zip line, right? Everybody takes their turn. There's one in every crowd that thinks they should go twice. And it's usually trying to get in front of you. It's like, hey, hey, dude, dude, your guy just went. I'm next. Just sort of inch up, get your bumper as close as you can, maybe make eye contact, make sure they know. Yeah, I know from the laughing that that could be somewhere where we could start. By all means, my friend, you are a very busy person, please. But it's a euphemism for our lives to show grace. It doesn't have to be big things. It doesn't have to be forgiving horrendous grievances that have been done against you, which we are also called to do. But we can start in simple ways. To be there for people is another thing I think this church is beautiful for. In Romans, we say, we read that you are to weep with those who weep, be joyous with those who have joy, just to be there with them. It doesn't necessarily mean the words, not necessarily that you're going to fix things, but just be there. Your presence is soothing. It's grace. It is God's grace, his hands and feet in this world. And the last is to show gratitude in all things. First Thessalonians. Joyful always, pray continually, give thanks. And you say, okay, well, how's that grace? Like, to just be joyful and grateful and everything. You ever hang out with people who are like that? You ever want to hang out more with people who are like that? Of course you do. It's such an amazing blessing to be with people who are always so joyful and they lift you up. God's grace. The second area that I'd like to talk about is back onto this notion of judgment. If I took a quick poll or test, I'm pretty sure everybody would pass in knowing that God asks us and tells us and commands us not to judge our fellow man. We know that. The question is, does our, our actions and our words mirror what's up in here? Or do we let God's grace flow through us so people can see that they are not condemned, that we do not condemn them? I'm going to say this, and this is a personal opinion. It's not a church formal thing. One sentence that I can, a phrase that I cannot stand, and I wish was eradicated from any Christian language anywhere, is to love the sinner but hate the sin. Oh, I, I get it's technically right. I get it. I know where it comes from, St. Augustine and whatever, 1400s or something. Gandhi kind of revived it when he was along. But it just denotes 
such a hypocrisy. It sort of has us on our perch. It's like, I gotta love you because I have to. I can't stand who you are. I can't stand what you do. I can't. Many of you here are old enough to have held a diaper for the first time. Remember the first time? Like, you're moving sideways like this, your head turned the other way. Many of you are lucky not to have ever experienced cloth diapers going to the pail. You feel like a bomb disposal unit, you know. Love the sinner, hate the sin. That's us as Christians. I can't stand it. I guess I have to. That is not what Jesus is teaching us by his ways and by his passage. The third is that we have to tell the world about Jesus' grace. You know, we have to be practical about it. We have to be graceful. We have to run fairs. We have to run food cupboards. We have to be careful of our words. We have to be there. for. We have to do all those things. But ultimately, this incredible grace that has saved you and I for nothing that we have ever done, not by a long shot, that freedom to be freed from a life of sin is a message that we need to communicate as his children on earth. Do we do it right all the time? Do our words communicate this grace and this salvation that's available? I'm a big billboard fan. I know you're going to tell me that's like distracted driving. I should stop reading them. Thank goodness we don't have many in Canada, although for those of you who drive the 407, there's a beauty right by Young and 407 now. Massive. Can't wait to see good stuff up there. In the U.S., of course, they're everywhere. And a lot of churches participate in billboards, sometimes on top of their church, sometimes out on the highways. And there's a lot of good things and fun things that are written. I, I love the one, love everybody, I'll sort them out later, God. <laughs> I like that. There's another one that I quite like, God does not take sides, but the sign maker does, go Yankees, go. <laughs> but how often have you read with church names on them or God's name on them? Words like turn or burn. If you think it's hot here, just you wait. Those are appealing words. That really communicates the grace that God has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Not because you and I are holier than thou. Not because you and I are almost at Pharisee level of goodness here. For nothing that we have done. I struggled on how to summarize this morning, especially around this point. And in fact, I'm going to invite the uh, worship team to come back up. I had written some words. If I were to put up a billboard, what would it say? I actually sent Jeff the slide deck that had those words in it. First thing you would have noticed is I'm not a poet or a writer. The second thing that a few people close to me, I think, 
both Jerry and Lindsay kind of mentioned that I'm going to alienate a whole bunch of people in the church if I do this. So I was still fussing with the words and everything else. And I got to share this God moment because we're also wondering how to wrap up. Just uh, Tuesday or Wednesday this week, I was coming back home from a run, which I'm prone to do often. I listen to music all the time. Uh, you might think this is odd, but I was working on my sermon as I was running. I had it all sorted out, but this last part. I'm coming into our little cul-de-sac, and this song comes on my, uh, my headset, a song that I have heard over a hundred times. It's a very special song in our family because our grandson from the age of two on said it was his favorite song, and that is Greater by Mercy Me. I'm not going to sing it to you. But here's the God thing about it. Maybe I never really understood the lyrics before. And as I listened, the lyrics just poured over me. And God was saying, this is the message I want you to give on Sunday morning. I'm going to read some of the lyrics. And then we're going to move to transition time to communion with some time for reflection. And the worship team will take over. Maybe you too have been moved by these types of words. Maybe you too have been moved by the freedom that you have for eternity as we sit at his feet. But today, freed from a yoke of slavery. Let me read these words to you. Let them wash over you. Bring your doubts, bring your fears, bring your hurt, bring your tears. There will be no condemnation here. You are holy, righteous, and redeemed. Every time I fall, there will be those who call me a mistake. That's okay. Because I hear a voice, he calls me redeemed. When others say I'll never be enough, greater is the one living inside of me than he who is living in the world. There will be days I'll lose the battle. I don't know about you, but many days, many days I lose the battle. Grace says it doesn't matter because the cross already won the war. He's greater. He's greater. I'm learning to run freely, understanding just how he sees me, and he makes me love him more and more. God's amazing grace. Amen.